0: Hello and welcome to the ISBA BursaCast podcast. This is of course a Friday Focus episode and in today's episode our focus is going to be on the recent gender questioning guidance that came through from the DFE on the 19th of December 2023. Today we're going to be joined by James Garside, a partner at VWV, to consider what the guidance says and what this means for schools supporting gender questioning children. As we discuss in the episode, it is still in draft form and is non statutory but does offer a good set of guidelines to work from. Just before we welcome James on, I'm just going to let you know that the early bird discount for the ISBA annual conference finishes today on the 23rd of February. So if you haven't yet made the most of that 10% discount, please do so. With nothing more to add, let's jump straight in and welcome James on. James, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Morning, Leo. I'm really grateful for, uh, for you asking me on today to talk
0: about this. No, well, it's fantastic to have you. It's an important topic and the DfE guidance has famously been a little bit late or patchy or all these things. And so finally, I've got a bit of clarity with it, which will be nice. The draft, well, it's, it's still in draft actually, isn't it? So I shouldn't say too much. The draft DfE guidance uh, that's just come through is regarding safeguarding and welfare responsibilities of schools and colleges concerning gender questioning children. How does the draft actually do that?
1: Uh, well, thank you, Leon. I mean, that was an important point you made at the beginning. So just before we dive into that question, you're right, the guidance at the moment is only draft, um, it's non-statutory, even when it's in its final form, it will be non-statutory. So it is considered essentially advisory uh, for schools. And I think um, that's something that, that that's important to stress, um, albeit that I think following the guidance is going to be part of demonstrating the sort of reasonable skill and care that's um, inherent in the duty of care that schools have. So the guidance actually um, takes a a sort of holistic view of the issue of safeguarding and it actually expressly deals with this as a, um, I suppose, a safeguarding related issue for the first time. And so the the thrust of the guidance, which is, um, as many people will know, essentially based on or certainly informed by the the, the CAS interim review, suggests that schools adopt essentially a safeguarding lens to be able to engage with gender questioning children, so that they are always asking the question about whether the child in question, or more broadly, children are being appropriately protected in the school's approach to this. And ultimately, what it seeks to do is to ensure that schools are in a position to be able to come to informed and safe decisions for all concerned, including the the gender questioning child. And one of the one of the sort of key principles in the guidance, of course, is around the protection of single sex spaces. And this this I think's been one of the, the most contentious areas and perhaps where where lines have become particularly blurred and fuzzy and there's been quite a lot of confusion. So I think that the guidance is incredibly clear and and, and focused on the absolutes in terms of uh, separation of single sex spaces is a really important part actually of the sort of safeguarding principle behind the behind the guidance.
0: Yeah, I think there was a need for some clearer blanket steps to have. So I think there are so many variations in how this is being handled beforehand. So this should give us a bit more of a level playing field and how to at least start approaching this topic.
1: I mean, I think, I, I think that's right. And, you know, one of the things that that, that I think has um, has been a frustration for so long is that it's a very sensitive subject. There's so much noise in the media and social media, of course, around all of this that I think schools have come under huge amounts of different types of pressure in different ways. And there's just been very little to guide them and steer them through that safely. So so to have something that I think sets one position that that is clear and can be followed has a lot um, to be said for it. Although, of course, there are critics and and those who, um, who are not hugely impressed by the guidance But there is, of course, that opportunity now to uh, respond to the consultation where that's the case.
0: Yeah, I think there's never been a piece of guidance that's not had that. So I think it's fairly, fairly standard, I suppose. Diving into the sort of details of this, a common issue with anything school related is parental involvement, especially with this in such a sensitive area. Can you elaborate on the principles uh, in the guidance regarding parental involvement in decisions related to this child's social transition, as it's been called?
1: Yes. Um, and I'll put my sort of neck out slightly here. I mean, it's always surprised me that this is this is something that is um, controversial because uh, VWV's view has always been that engagement with um, parents is going to be best practice in all but exceptional circumstances. And this is precisely the principle that the guidance recognises. And if you examine the sort of law that sits behind that, you know, children under 16 don't have capacity in law to make their own decisions, unless, of course, they have the requisite maturity and knowledge to do so on a, a decision by decision basis, what I think schools would consider um, as Gillick competence. Um, but children over 16 still are usually heavily reliant on their parents and subject, of course, to the sort of myriad influences that have been identified by Cass in this, this shifting um, demographic and and what we might frame as a sort of phenomenon of gender questioning um, children. Families are these children's primary support networks in many cases. And of course, parents do actually have a legal right to participate in decisions taken about their children until they're 18. Um, and one of the things that I think could get lost, but, but is absolutely vital for independent schools, is that your primary business relationships are contractual relationships with parents. Um, and there's a legitimate expectation, if not an expressed term of the contract, that you're going to engage with parents about uh, their child's education and welfare. So uh, it seems to me that absolutely should be the starting point, and of course there are there are exceptions. What I would say briefly on the exceptions, of course, is that if you do get get a gender questioning child who's really very concerned about engaging with parents because they they feel that there would be a risk of um, family breakdown or or, or some, something worse coming to pass, then that really is also a relevant factor in in where schools go taking into account the relevant uh, factors set out in the guidance because ultimately you know if you support a child's social transition without their family's knowledge or or agreement there is a real risk of inadvertent outing and of course if you've identified that there is such a risk that they parents can't be involved in the discussion in the first place the risk actually of parents finding out um inadvertently that their child's been supported to socially transition at school are going to be far greater so so i think these things are uh, you, you know really important and mustn't be um, mustn't be ignored
0: yeah absolutely and i i suppose all that advice actually can be taken in larger forms as well not just in in gender questioning children but in any safeguarding situation where parental involvement is a little bit unsure that seems the most practical approach to it actually
1: I, th- I think that's absolutely right, and I think one of the things that's become a barrier to it, and, um, and this is always this is always interesting, is the sort of the spectre of um, GDPR and, and schools are so so worried about data protection. And, and I understand why, because actually um, so often they're presented with it as, as it being this kind of very fixed sort of linear framework that doesn't allow for sensible decision making. Um uh, I'll probably be, be shot by my data protection colleagues, but I think as a starting point, as a very broad statement of the position, if you have a good reason to share information, then Generally speaking, there is likely to be a lawful way to do that under the GDPR. It's much more flexible than that. And so even when you have a child who says they don't want parents to be informed, that isn't the only basis on which schools can can share that information with parents. So I think schools really have to keep coming back to first principles. What's in the best interest of the child? Um, if they are doing something that's in the best interest of the child that involves sharing information, they're almost certainly going to be doing that um, in a lawful way. Of course, provided they haven't um, absolutely promised confidentiality, which is something the guidance recommends against.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's an interesting insight. We've kind of covered there the the parental involvement and thinking about now the staff involvement. What specific considerations does the guidance suggest for school staff when evaluating Request for social transition.
1: Uh, I mean, a, a slight bit of sort of context to this, really, which is, um, as I said, the, the, the guidance is informed by the the interim report by um, Hillary Cass, who's um, a paediatrician undertaking a review of gender identity uh, support services, and she's identified that that essentially. There there has been a huge increase um, and a change in the demographic of gender questioning children, and there are lots of reasons potentially for that. We don't know precisely what they are, but certainly there is a correlation with groups of children who might be neurodiverse, questioning uh, sexuality, for example, and and various other factors. So, what the guidance suggests is that schools take a almost a step back and say, well, look, we're not we're not going to make any judgments here about about the reasons for this, and we're not going to start from the the perspective that might be encouraged by those who support sort of gender identity um, ideology. That you know that th- that is the starting point and perhaps doesn't allow for any flexibility what we want to do is really understand the nature of the request make sure that actually it's been um, well considered what stage of that child's journey are they on and so of course what it's saying is you know allow for a period of watchful Waiting, so don't make hasty decisions because uh, Cass uh, has said that social transition is is not a neutral intervention; it can have long-term consequences. Uh, make parents aware, except for those exceptional circumstances where it would put the child at risk. Um, comply, of course, with the college's uh, or school safeguarding obligations, which again comes back to this viewing it through a through a sort of safeguarding lens, and take into account. Now, one of the, the criticisms of the guidance has been that the the voice of the gender questioning child has sort of been lost my view about this is that's slightly an unfair criticism because the whole point of the guidance is it's predicated on the child coming to the school and saying this is what I want to do so I think it is implicit that the starting point of that discussion is the child's voice um, but also schools are asked to take into account view of the view of the parents the age of the child of course and that goes back to you know the the ability of the child to be able to uh, understand the consequences and make decisions for themselves seriousness in the context um of the request and what we mean by that is that you know, as i was describing you know where, where are they on that um that particular pathway and journey and actually is it possible that they're being influenced by peers or social media you know we know we we, we live in an age now where um where where children can be subject to some quite uh, strong influences uh, through those channels as well, that perhaps we're only just starting to sort of unpick. And the long and short term impact on on the child, again, uh, recognizing that there are myriad factors, but also that um, there is a significant proportion of gender questioning children that will go on and uh, essentially Desist from that. They will resolve their concerns over their gender identity and um, uh, and go on to continue to to, to live as the, their biological sex, um, essentially, and impact on other pupils. And this again is a really key part of the guidance because for the first time, this says this isn't all about what the gender uh, questioning child might want. This is actually about schools striking a balance to ensure that what you agree for that young person as a suit, you know, suitable and appropriate arrangements doesn't doesn't put others at risk or. Necessarily impinge upon their rights.
0: Gosh, I'll I'll let you pause for breath there. That was a lot to sort of take in, but that, yeah, thank you for that. And you mentioned that the sort of the voice of the child is perhaps getting allegedly, you know, by critics lost in it all. Looking at experience of the child in the school environment, how does the guidance address, as you say, that the complex issues of sports facilities? Uh, you know toilet facilities sleeping arrangements for, for boarding schools um, for these gender questioning children within the school environment what what is there about that
1: I, I mean this has perhaps been um, in in many ways the most useful part of the guidance because these are the most thorny issues I think that schools grapple with now whether or not you agree with it and I think there is still some room for for, for debate about um, uh, about aspects of the law it's actually the guidance states a very straightforward and clear position on these issues now is that something that that strikes the right balance between the interests of the gender questioning child and the broader school community well um uh, you know we can open that up for a for a furious debate um potentially but the point to the guidance is to provide clarity and ultimately you know it sets as one of its sort of um key principles that uh, that biological sex is a, is a vital marker essentially in terms of schools discharging their safeguarding responsibilities, and that the protection of single-sex spaces is absolute. I mean, sport is a is slightly distinct, but but equally similarly straightforward so far as the guidance is concerned, in that it says that you know, where where we're dealing with competitive sport, it has to be both safe and fair. And that there are almost no, or very very limited circumstances in which where physicality might be a, a, a factor that you're going to be able to achieve a sort of a mix, essentially of, um, uh, of of biological boys and girls within that sporting environment that that would make for both something that is safe and fair. So I think it it, it does provide schools at least with um, with certainty and clarity. I don't think I must admit that following. Consultation, there's going to be um, any material change to the provisions around single-sex spaces. I think that's that's absolutely fixed. And not least, it's got it's got a fairly solid legal basis as well, being rooted both in the um, independent schools uh, standard regulations, and the EHRC um, has updated its technical guidance as well, following some um, some case law to provide. Uh, I think, some greater clarity around the definitions used in the Equality Act so that we now don't have necessarily the same scope for debate about what sex means and what boys and girls mean within the context of, of that legis- legislation and, um, and regulations.
0: Okay, sure. Yeah, the guidance is pretty pretty rock solid on that. Absolutely. Uh, so looking, I feel like we've covered a lot of the practicalities of this new draft guidance Then looking ahead, as you say, about the CAS findings and what they really say, How does the guidance recommend schools approach this increasing demographic shift and the rise in gender questioning children? And what implications does this have, do you think, for school policies and practices going forward?
1: Yes, so I mean, it, immediately, what the guidance does, as I say, is it creates a um, a framing and a process through which the school is guided to consider um, the possibility of a number of different factors that are are in the mix here. So I think that's that's the way it it, it approaches Cass's uh, findings, which is to say, you know, really have an open mind as to what you are dealing with. More broadly, I think the way schools um, can look at this, and and the um, I always encourage schools to go back and actually look at the CAS interim report, which is um, uh, you know really interesting and 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 useful in this area, is actually just a, a, to reinforce the message that we're not dealing with one thing, you know. And then the temptation is to sort of stick a uh, you know a big old circle around something and say, right, that's it. We've got it nailed. We know what that is, and therefore we can do X, Y, and Z. And 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 I absolutely understand that in the context of any. Busy and complex organisation. The more we can do to sort of break things down, simplify, and have processes that are, are are very clear. Actually, what we're saying is, we're dealing with a large number of young people, and uh, there isn't there isn't a typical child. So, I think, so far as what does that mean for schools, they should ensure, I think, that that through their policies and practices and approach, ultimately, they're not missing some of these really important factors. And one of the risks that Cass talks about is diagnostic overshadowing. If you have a young gender questioning child that comes to you and uh, uh, and you were to take a sort of almost unquestioning approach to do as they ask and say, right, we'll support You know, these particular measures, and it then turns out that they might, um, uh, for instance, have an autistic spectrum condition that hadn't been recognized, uh, that may or may not be part of the gender questioning, but certainly could be, uh, then actually, uh, you know, schools have been. Diverted away from something that that, it, that ought to be quite a sort of key focus for them, and there's a real you know real possibility that schools might might fall below the bar in terms of their duties to to young people if they are missing those types of factors. So I think policies um, and practices have to enable them to to ensure that they are identifying where they have got children who might be neurodiverse. Again. Uh, those who are perhaps um vulnerable in some way um, or questioning sexuality, those who are falling prey perhaps to certain influences, be that peers or or social media. And and we know that, that UNESCO you know, has got a very complex um, uh, and voluminous policy framework that deals with all of these different issues in different ways. I think it's always sensible to have um, some way of taking a step back and ensuring that it's all working together towards the same, the same aims. And I think that the guidance is useful if you read it alongside the CAS report in terms of drawing together quite a lot of those threads.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of conclusions to be had from that. And then a question that sort of is a little bit grander than the ones we've had so far, and one that I have not prepared you for, I'm very sorry, is that the, given that this next generation of children coming through are ones that who've grown up in an entirely tech-driven world, who've had social media from the age of day dot, essentially it's a very different demographic shift than the one that was there when all these school regulations and, and kind of organisations were put together. Do you think that we're overdue for a full-scale reconsideration of a lot of these uh policies i i mean it's a it's an excellent question
1: um as you say um not not something that um uh, that i have um a position i would say is is um one that represents our firm about i have a very clear view on this as a parent of two young children coming into this world and of course we're seeing quite a lot now in the media um particularly uh arising out of um, the Brianna Jai murder, actually, there's a a renewed discussion, actually, about the extent to which we are properly protecting young people from the the adverse effects and and influences of that tech world, and of course that's happening precisely at the same time as we are seeing you know the next uh, the next sort of um, industrial revolution if you were um, in terms of you know AI so I think the threats are, are great, and of course people talk about the opportunities too, and I think that's right there's a balance um, to be struck and ultimately, I think what your question boils down to is is the is the sort of um, legislative and policy framework that schools use up to the task. And I think actually I would say, well, it, it is as much as anything I've seen in that I don't think that we as a society and perhaps we as a broader world have yet managed to get ahead of any of this. You know, the rate of change and the rate of progress has been so enormous that actually we are we are running just to try and, and and keep up, and I think at the moment there's there's far more that needs to be done to uh, recognise the the potential impacts that that these types of technologies are having on young people. I think uh, I think schools are doing what they can, and I think that um, from what I see, the legislation and the policy framework um, does as much as it it possibly can within that broader within that broader sort of societal framework. But I think the starting point is that we we need some greater consensus perhaps on um on the extent to which we're talking about you know is this a is this a a question of trying to control content and content creators or or, or actually is there something perhaps more more fundamental in terms of of access to technology and age restrictions and all of those things that are
0: are being um are being discussed mm, i can sense a far greater debate to be had um, <laughs> around, certainly a topic that is is huge and and one that's ripe for discussion. But for the sake of this, keeping it reasonably dialed in for the sake of this episode, uh, I thank you very much indeed for covering kind of questions and the policies there. And obviously, as you say, it is non-statutory draft guidance in the moment. So it is currently up for review, as you say. So that's encouraging. And it's great that we've got something that hopefully will, at the very least, give everyone a bit of a, not so much a glass ceiling, but certainly a solid foundation with which to, to build off, which is really, really exciting.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Leo.
0: No, well, it has been a pleasure hopefully we'll get you on when as and when maybe in i don't know how many years time it'll take uh we get some solid stuff through or any further developments on this it'd be fantastic to have your your comments on it but yeah uh thank you very much indeed it's been a real pleasure having you on and uh yeah have a lovely tuesday afternoon
1: yes likewise
0: and there we have at the end of that episode thank you very much to james for joining us to discuss all of those details and thank you to you for listening through As always, all these details will be in the ISBA Reference Library should you wish to find more information about it. Otherwise, please email office at theisba.org.uk or advice at at theisba.org.uk. To get in touch with the podcast team, please email podcast at theisba.org.uk. We love to hear from you. Aside from this, please do make sure you're subscribed wherever you're listening to ensure you never miss an update, and please do share it with members of your team if you think they'll find it useful. And if for some entirely understandable reason you simply cannot get enough of these burstcasts, please do flick back through previous Friday Focuses where there's a range of speakers and topics discussed. Looking forward to next week, we'll be joined by Danielle Bounds, who is the Sales Director of the ICC in Wales where the ISBA is having its annual conference in May. She talks us through the lovely venue that they have there and all the vital work they do around sustainability and ensuring they are putting on world-class conferences. With nothing else to add, I'll leave it there. Have a lovely weekend, and till next time, farewell.